someday, yes, we will die, whether it's for me, it's from cancer or something else. But you know what? On every other day, I'm not. And so I don't want to live every other day as if I was. Mm-hmm. Hello, everybody. This is Caitlin Jinko, aka Lels. And thank you for tuning in to my sixth episode of my Learn with Lels podcast. In this episode, I sat down with Jennifer David, who is married to my cousin. Uh, My sisters and I were actually flower girls at their wedding over 20 years ago now. And we always looked at Jen as being this really smart woman who would teach us board games and who would tell us great stories. And I started this podcast because I wanted listeners to hear great stories, but also to encourage people to be more empathetic and understanding of people, especially people who have different backgrounds and different paths than themselves. I really wanted to talk to Jen because she is a First Nations communications expert and she works very closely with the Indigenous community. So I wanted to learn more about the things that Indigenous people have gone through and to help listeners to try to understand Canada's history a bit better and to try to debunk some racist beliefs. Also in this episode, Jen and I talked about her battle with breast cancer. She was diagnosed in 2018, and she officially beat the disease at the end of last year. So we talked a lot about that and what she learned on that super difficult journey. We talked about some heavy things in this episode, and I really hope that you enjoy learning from Chen and hearing all that she has to say. I don't really like to be interviewed. Like you said, no. I'd rather be on the other side. <laughs> yeah. But I do like telling stories and yeah. I like listening to stories. So yeah. yeah, so whatever you like. Okay, thank you. Yeah, a lot of, like all the people who I've talked to, it's just like I ask a question and they've like taken over, which has been nice. That's fine. It's nice to be the interviewer. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I get it. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for being my sixth guest on my Learn With Wells podcast. Um, so can you, for our listeners, tell us who you are? My name is Jennifer David, and I am married to your cousin, Jericho. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell me um, what you do for work? So I work as a management consultant, which my kids will always say, what is that, mom? Like, what do you actually do? And it's not something that you grow up and say, oh, I want to become a consultant. It was just something that I I kind kind of fell into. I used to be the... So I have a journalism degree from Carleton in Ottawa, and I'm, I'm from Northern Ontario, and that's how I ended up in Ottawa, because I wanted to go, that's one of my good journalism schools, so that's how I ended up there. And then I, uh, I worked for the Aboriginal People's Television Network, and I was there for five years, as, and I was their director of communications. And uh, after I left that, it was so exciting. It was around when the network was launching. It was very interesting. In fact, I wrote a book about that, because it was just such an interesting time. But I couldn't imagine working for someone else or going back to an ordinary job or nine to five. So I thought, well, maybe I could kind of be my own boss. And so that's when I started my own consulting company. And I did my own consulting for about five years or so around the time when um, when Jericho and I got married and then had had Caleb and Grace, my two kids. Uh, and then I joined with um, some other consultants who had a, a larger consulting firm, and I've been with them now. So I've been doing consulting for 20 years now. Of course, my area of expertise is in communications, and I do a lot of um, research and writing, and all of our work is in the area of um, sort of Indigenous. We work with First Nations, Inuit, and Métis communities and organizations and help them with 
communications. I help them, you know, write annual reports. I help them write communications policies. I also do a lot of facilitation and my company has um, an Indigenous cultural awareness um, courses that we offer. And so I facilitate all of those and I developed all of those. And that's mm-hmm. really very interesting. And that's, that's what's <coughs> taking up most of my time right now mm-hmm. in my work. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I didn't know that you um, were the director of communications at AP, APTN. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, at UOIT, um, like the ladies who work in Indigenous education, like they refer to APTN like all the time. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's they so cool. they celebrated twenty years. So I'm I'm dating mm-hmm. myself now. <laughs> so I was in my twenties when yeah. I started working there, and uh, I actually was part of the team that that helped get the broadcast license for APTN to go on the air, and mm-hmm. it went on the air in September of nineteen ninety nine. So it's been twenty years yeah. that the network's been on now. Yeah, that was a very exciting time and a lot of fun. Yeah, that's so cool. So did you you originally thought that you would be doing journalism? Yeah, interesting. I, I mean, I didn't know anything about journalism. Again, I came from a very small town and there was no radio station, there was no newspapers, and there was no TV. So mm-hmm. what did I know about what journalism was? And I was in, you know, my final year. So back then it was grade 13 here in Ontario. And I literally went and saw, you know, the guidance counselor and said, I don't know what to do. I, w- I really liked English literature. Mm-hmm. And my dad, who was a very wise man, very sort of gently said, well, that's very nice, but are you planning to be a teacher? And I said, no, I don't think I'd want to be a teacher. And so basically he dissuaded me from studying English literature only because like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with an English degree? Right. And so anyways, I went, saw my guidance counselor and did one of those tests, you know, a personality career or whatever tests. And then it spits out, you know, a bunch of jobs that you might be good at. And journalist was one of them. And I thought, journalist, huh? That sounds, that sounds kind of interesting. I don't really know what it's about. But I had these ideas because I loved this, the idea of traveling, right? I had been an exchange student and I had lived overseas. And so I liked this idea, oh, I could, I, I could travel and, you know, I could be a journalist around the world. And I was always very curious and I like hearing people's stories. And I thought, wow, someone would pay me to, like, talk to people. So that was why I went into journalism school, but it didn't take very long. After my first year, I just thought, I'm not interested in the news. Like, the news is not, I'm not yeah. interested in it. First of all, when, you know, I had to do a, a one week um, where you had to go into, a, you have to do a, like a practicum, and I ended up at the, the Ottawa CTV station, and it was like working in a factory. It's like show up and then do this and then do that and pull it together and try to make something out of it before the end of the day so we can slap it together and put it on the news. And I thought, I can't do mm-hmm. that. And, so uh, and radio was really, even back then, you know, in the 90s, it was dying, like certainly radio news. And, uh, and I, I liked print, but I was, I mean, I, I, I like writing, but I was, I liked television and sort of film and that sort of thing. So I decided that, you know, I'm, I want to get the degree because it was a pretty prestigious degree, right? If you say you've got a degree in journalism or Carlton, that's good. And I thought it could at least open doors, who knows? But I knew I would probably go into communications and not journalism. And that's exactly what I did. So I... I was unemployed for almost a year after I graduated (laughs) because I had this grandiose idea that I was going to become this TV video producer. I was going to like produce documentaries. I was going to do all this stuff, but but nobody would hire me. Like I just came out of school. What do I know? I know nothing. And I had no contacts and, 
and certainly no money and no way to kind of get into that sort of business. And uh, so I tried and tried and tried and it just never happened. And then this job posting came up um, for APTN and it was actually the precursor to APTN, which used to be a, a television network in the far north and then it transitioned to become APTN. And so then I started at the bottom and I didn't even do any communication. So here I am, you know, thinking I'm this graduate with this journalism, newly minted journalism degree. And and then I end up basically being a secretary to yeah. this guy <laughs> who was the director of operations for what used to be called Television Northern Canada. Now, the job posting was for a communications coordinator. So that's what they said. But the guy was completely disorganized, really nice guy, but he was completely disorganized. And he had like a stack of paper about five feet high. And like I had to f- sort it all, make this oh, filing God. system, create this. And again, this is dating me. So this is, you know, mid 90s when we're just getting into the Internet. And so my job was to design like a website for for the for the company and start to do like a newsletter and promoting this television network so eventually i did start to do that but i did not do any communications for at least a year that i was working there and i'm thinking what am i doing and i was paid like peanuts right yeah but i could see there was a future there i see i could see there were possibilities and then, of course, when APTN launched in 1999, I'd already been there for four years. Uh, and then uh, by then I was the director of communications. But then after I was there, after we launched, they we bought a building and we started hiring all kinds of staff in Winnipeg because that was a better location to mm-hmm. have all the staff. So we had all of our core people in Ottawa. And then we started hiring all of the journalists and the we had the the, uh, the production people and everything was happening in Winnipeg. And basically, we just said, it doesn't make sense to have these two offices. So basically, all of us who were in Ottawa were basically offered our jobs as long as we moved to Winnipeg. Oh, true. <laughs> so I don't know if you've ever been to Winnipeg, and no offense for anybody who's from Winnipeg, but I did not want to move to Winnipeg. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so I took a, a little buyout. I'd, again, I'd been there five years. It wasn't much, but I took that little buyout, and I used that to start my own company. And then oh, I just cool. was like working in my little basement, and you know, yeah. got myself a, back in the day a little fax machine and yeah. like a computer. And, just, and so you were young contract. when you started that, right? Like, yeah, so I was 29. Yeah, um, when true. I started that. Oh my yeah. gosh, yeah. yeah. And did you go right into like doing communications for yes. like, the indigenous community? Yes, exactly. And and you you'll see if ever you meet people who are sort of entrepreneurs or who people who who start you know, with their own business, they often have like an anchor client who kind of helps them. So of course that that anchor client for me was APTN because Mm -hmm. they knew me. And so they hired me to do a few little contracts here and there, but I saw that there was a need, right? So that, that's basically what entrepreneurship is. It's, it's like, it's like that. I, I, I know all these Disney movies now, but anyways, from the movie (laughs) robots where, where he says, find a need, see a need, fill a need. That's, mm-hmm. that's basically what it means to be an entrepreneur. It's find a need, fill the need. Yeah. And so when I was at APTN, I found that I was playing this sort of bridging role. So I had an understanding of the media. And so like um, indigenous communities didn't know how to get their stories into the media. So I mm. could help them do those kind of PR kind of work. But I also understood the sort of indigenous community. And so the media and governments and organizations are like, well, how do we get our messages to these communities? We don't understand. We don't know how they work. And I, I had that knowledge too. So I felt like I had sort of two sides that I was able to bring together with my little company. And so, yeah, so then I started doing so sort cool. of promotion and writing and I did some 
I did some communication strategies. I did one for Statistics Canada where they were trying to, you know, get the word out about voting, Indigenous people getting Indigenous people out to vote. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I did a bunch of videos um, for the Canadian Museum of History, like Indigenous-specific videos. And so, yeah, so then I started doing more and more sort of work. But it, it's, it's hard working on your own. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a people person. Yeah. And so it's hard kind of just working on your own. And you're always having to find more work, right? Yeah, And if you're true. super busy and you're in the middle of something, you've got to always be thinking about where what's the next project going to yeah. be. And I couldn't take anything on. I did take on one project, this one I was talking about for Statistics Canada. It was huge. And it was like a lot of money because I also because I had to do posters and radio ads and all kinds of things. And it was overwhelming, like for me all by myself. And I brought yeah. bring people in, but I wasn't I wasn't ready for that. And so that was why I was happy to join with an, um, another consulting company because I had done five years on my own and I thought, OK, I'm, I'm ready. And so it was a consultant that had that I'd worked with that the APTN had hired. And I really sort of liked um, their work and I really liked what he did. And so, yeah, so I started working with them. Mm -hmm. And so now that's the company I still work with. We've morphed over the years, but we're a majority indigenous consulting company with offices in Ottawa and Iqaluit. And so then I just kept doing the work that I had sort of been doing on my own, but now I had a whole team. So now I could take on huge projects, right? Yeah. That's so cool. I just finished a project for for APTN, which I hadn't, hadn't worked with them for years. And sorry, what does APTN stand for? Oh, the Aboriginal People's Television Network. Right. Yeah. And so I just finished a big project with them. They were looking for a consultant to do the first ever National Indigenous Music Impact Study. Basically, what's the impact that Indigenous musicians are having in Canada and their mm -hmm. economic impact and that kind of thing. So it was a massive project. And so now I can do those kinds of projects. So I've been yeah. a project manager for a long time now. So now I can bring teams together and, you know, put it all. So I, I, I really love it. And then I, I guess I'm doing a lot of cultural awareness training now, which is really interesting yeah, too. Yeah, that's so cool. I feel like that's so important because there are so many, like, misconceptions about the Indigenous community that make me so angry. Uh -huh. Like, when yep. people say, like, oh, just, like, ignorant, like, stereotypical things. But it's like, if you just, like, took a second to, like, understand the background like just a little bit then like you would not be talking right now but nobody's really taught that in school right how yeah, can you expect exactly. people know any, to know any different yeah for and sure in fact that's what senator murray sinclair who used to be the chair of the truth and reconciliation commission that's what he said he said you know we've all been taught the wrong things mm -hmm. about indigenous people and indigenous people of course through residential schools were taught to be ashamed of who they are yeah and so nobody really has the right story and so we all mm -hmm. need to learn you know ourselves yeah. um and so that's that's part of rec reconciliation and they've and the trc truth and reconciliation commission came out with their calls to action and several of them are all about making sure people get more indigenous cultural awareness at mm -hmm. schools. Uh, lawyers need to do it. You know, people in the medical profession need to do it. Yeah. So that's starting to change. And I'm, we're getting a lot of interest in doing the kind of um, training that we offer. Because like you say, people are like, we didn't know any of this. Yeah, like, like in school. We this? Yeah, they really need to change like the education system. And they are. We, yeah. Oh, and they, they are. are. And they are. In fact, we were, there was just a discussion yesterday. I was talking to my daughter. And so she's in grade 10. 
and um, the grade 10 curriculum, no, the grade 11 English curriculum in Ontario schools are now going to ditch Shakespeare in and change it to Indigenous literature. Yeah, I saw you posted so I was, like, that. very excited yeah, about that. Yeah, that's so exciting. I know, right? Good. So yeah, that's how things change. Learning about Shakespeare, like, it <laughs> doesn't make sense. Like, I yeah. get it. I mean, Shakespeare's supposed to be about you know, the grand feelings and tragedy and, you know, like Mm -hmm. jealousy and love and, you know, whatever, hatred. But, you know, you could learn that just as much with characters who are in in Canada, who Mm -hmm. are Indigenous. So why wouldn't we do that, right? Yeah, for sure. Who needs to learn old English, honestly, right? Yeah, Yeah, we don't need to. (laughs) No, exactly. Um, But yeah, you are from, I was looking on your LinkedIn, uh, the Chapla Cree First Nation. Yes, yes, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so did, I assume that impacted like the work that you ended up getting into? Yeah. So that, that, that's, again, that's interesting too. So on one, it's only on one side of my family. So this is my father's side of the family. He is both Cree and Ojibwe and also Irish. And my mom is Irish and French. So I sort of have a sort of mixed bag in my background. Mm. Uh, but growing up in Northern Ontario, my dad was always sort of in the bush and, you know, he grew up in, in more of a sort of traditional way, especially from his aunts and uncles on the land, you know, at their bush camps and hunting and fishing, trapping, that sort of thing. I didn't learn a lot of that growing up. I was always the black sheep of the family. My brother learned hunting, fishing, trapping, all that stuff. He was out in the bush and he loved it. And I was like, <laughs> I'm going to go to the library. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just, and my, my family is like, who are you? Right? I just yeah. never fit in you know within that Mm -hmm. per se although I do love the bush I just I I used to say to my dad I'm like he'd be like okay come on we're gonna go out hunting or we're gonna go out fishing and I'm like I'll I'll come in the bush with you but do we have to kill something (laughs) (laughs) oh that's so sweet so I liked canoeing and I liked you know being out that was fun Mm -hmm. I just I just I never was into hunting and fishing I'm I'm fine I certainly am not a vegetarian or anything it's just Mm -hmm. I never learned any of those sort of skills kind of thing but yeah but uh, yeah, so and then and then as I grew up and I, I came into this work that I was doing and I started at APTN and then I, and then I realized, you know, because I'm just as much Irish as I am, you know, Cree or Ojibwe, but, mm-hmm. you know, my, you know, Irish ancestry and, you know, the Irish uh, culture doesn't need any more sort of advocates, right? Yeah. But the indigenous community needs mm-hmm. more advocates. They need more people who are educated and who, you know, are a voice for, you know, indigenous issues and I thought you know I think I could I could do that I could take the skills I have and and do that and so I've been very fulfilled by doing that Mm -hmm. yeah that's cool yeah I like that a lot um yeah when I was at you yeah like throughout school like in high school and elementary school like I didn't learn anything about like the indigenous community but then when I worked at UIT that was like a big part of like educating the the staff which that's good good. I didn't even know they did that that's Mm -hmm. really good I'm glad yeah so things are changing yeah for sure but yeah the more you learn the more it's just like oh my gosh like treated people so horribly like what a Sad but history. but and, but that is the history, and it's mm-hmm. and it's the same. Australia, New Zealand, yeah. India. Whenever a country goes, and I mean, even the even the history in the Philippines mm-hmm. from the Spanish, you go back far yeah. enough. The colonizers just they, they they only wanted to extract resources, whether it was mm-hmm. human resources or, you know, mi- minerals or timber or you know spices or whatever it was. They wanted 
to just take and take and take, right? Mm-hmm. And and unfortunately, the church, especially the Catholic church back in the day, it was like, this is our God-given right. Since you guys are pagans and savages, we're just going to come and do what we want. And since you're not civilized, we're going to bring you civilization. And, you, mm-hmm. and you know, you're, you're inferior to us. And so we're going to tell you our ways and you're going to do, you know, the way we do things. And that's basically what's happened in Canada. That's what's ha- what happened in the United States, what happened in, not as much in New Zealand, they have a d- bit of a different history, but certainly what happened in Australia, um, it's a s- sort of a sad, sort of, the British are the most imperialist sort of country, and <laughs> yeah. they've got their tentacles everywhere, and, mm-hmm. and indigenous people in, in all those countries, um, and even in South America, and it's, it's kind of, it is quite sad, mm-hmm. but things are changing, we're yeah. starting to see people yeah, stand up for their see. rights, and get people to sort of understand the land that you live in, and and most ironically, what I'm seeing now in this era of climate change, people are real realizing that the kind of unbridled sort of capitalism and greed, um, you know, that we're doing again to take and take and take from the environment from people is is making a sick planet with sick people, mm-hmm. mental health issues, and and now they're turning back to indigenous people and saying like, can you help us? Like yeah. <laughs> we've kind of gone, we've this is we're in a mess, and like maybe you guys have the answers and we're like oh only yeah. you listen to this like 300 <laughs> years ago maybe you might not be here mm-hmm. but yeah yeah but a lot of the issues too like were not that long ago which is one thing I that know. people i feel like should understand as well so like yeah when people say racist things like oh like they just need to get over it but like it wasn't a long time ago like there are lots of like fairly fresh traumas that need to be dealt with. Yeah, and what, so when I do the cultural awareness workshops, a few of the things that I say is that when I, I asked people, do you know when the last residential school closed down? Mm-hmm. And people, like, they don't have an idea, but they think, like, oh, in the 1940s and 1950s. The last residential school closed down in 1996. Mm-hmm. 1996. God, I was alive. That, exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, and you think about generation after generation going to these kinds of schools. And, you know, I know the scale is nowhere n- near the same thing, and I'm not mm-hmm. trying to sort of disparage it, but nobody would ever say to the Jews you guys should just get over it. Like it happened, yeah. but yeah, let's just, let's get over Why don't you just get over it? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think so. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's not about like getting over it. It's making sure it doesn't happen again and understanding mm-hmm. what intergenerational trauma means. It means that what happened to those children, which could have been 200 years ago, they're so traumatized and scarred as they grow up. They don't know how to be parents. And the way that they were abused and how they were treated, we call it lateral violence. They, we start treating each other where oppressed people oppress people. That's basically what lateral violence is. And mm-hmm. They start treating each other like that. So the abuse that they suffered, they're now putting on their own sort of children. And then those children grow up and they do it to their children. And mm-hmm. to try to cope, there. that's why we see so much addictions and so much drug and alcohol abuse and so much suicide because they're, they're still trying to cope with the sort of trauma of how they were treated. And mm-hmm. it's hard to break that for sure cycle right yeah. and I think back because I do have relatives that went to there was a residential school in the t- in Chapla where I grew up mm-hmm. and I have relatives who went there and and you can see sort of successive generations and I have the utmost admiration for my dad because he he was an alcoholic mm-hmm. and, but he stopped drinking when I was really small and that I think changed the trajectory of my life and so I feel mm-hmm. like I need to honor that and sort of do yeah. what I can, right? To, to, to start at, at my generation to be one of the people who are saying, you know, we're going to change things. We're going to mm-hmm. you know, make things better. Yeah. 
in a small way. (laughs) (laughs) So what is one thing that you would want people with kind of like racist views towards indigenous people to know? Oh my goodness. (laughs) That's a big question. All right. So (laughs) I think the, the one that I get the most is... You guys don't even pay taxes, all my tax dollars, and you guys are mm-hmm. wasting it. That's one that I always get. And the thing that people don't understand is many uh, First Nations signed treaties with Canada or with the British, like even if it was 200 years ago. And part of those treaties were that they would agree to go on these reserves. That's where we get this word reserve from. This land, there was land reserved for them that they would be able to have. But the idea was that the indigenous people always thought, well, we're, we're going to share the land with you and we, you're the British and all the colonizers are coming and that's okay. We'll share the land with you. But they, they weren't giving up their, all their rights. And what the governments said when they were signing treaties, they said, okay, and um, we're going to give you like either what are called annuities. So back in the day, it was like $4 a year for per person. And then they said, as we make money off of this territory that we're on, mm-hmm. mining, forestry, any kind of resource realm, then you'll get to share in that because, you know, we're sharing the land. Well, do you think that's ever happened? <laughs> so know. what happened? Any money that sort of have, have, has come in, it's co- what they call it. They call it Indian, it's um, Indian trusts or Indian money, people call it. So it's basically a big pot um, that, the, that the federal government has that's actually First Nations money. But the government and over time with the colonial attitudes, it's become that, no, no, this is our money. This is mm. taxpayer money. And we're going to dole it out to you in small amounts. And we're going to tell you how to spend it. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's supposed to be, okay, here's the money we got f- from, from yeah. using your land, so here you go. But that's not how Canadians understand it, right? Oh, so I now, didn't know that. There you go. So now that there's always this sort of stereotype. It's like, oh, people grumbling about this, that, and the other thing. And then the other thing is that the way things work with, uh, if, you're a, if you're on a reserve and the reserve is dictated by something called the Indian Act from the federal government. The Indian Act is a racist, sexist piece of legislation that's been around since 1876. And it basically made anybody that lived on a reserve to basically be second-class citizens, wards of the state, where the federal government were the only ones who were going to help them. Well, they underfund everything to those reserves. Mm -hmm. You can't have your own house. You have to take the house that the government decides they're going to build for you. They have to take the money for the schools that the federal government decides to give to you, which is not at the same level of provincial schools elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Child welfare, same thing. The money's not the same. But all of this goes to the... To these first nations and then and then people complain they're like we're giving you guys like six seven billion dollars what do you guys like what's what's your problem why aren't you like and then they hear about mismanagement and mm-hmm. blah 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 but what people fail to understand is that the and this was this is quoted in one of the videos that i show when i do workshops is someone compared it to the province of new brunswick so the province of new brunswick for their population gets seven billion dollars from the federal government but nobody ever says right to Mm -hmm. new brunswick hey new brunswick what are you doing with your seven billion dollars but somehow it's okay to look at first nations and tell them you know how you're spending your money also at on a reserve all the money comes through the federal government whereas if you live in even a small town you get money from the federal government you get money from the provincial government and you get you get municipal money and you Mm -hmm. get municipal services and you get provincial services education and health and you get federal services on a reserve everything comes from the federal government so that money suddenly doesn't seem like enough 
to get everything done, which is the case. It's not enough. So why would they not be considered to get like provincial money and municipal money? Well, again, because of the Indian Act, right? That oh. It was set up as a federal thing back in the 1800s, and it was a way for the government to control and administer the Indians and land reserved for Indians. And so hmm. we're trying to get out of this Indian Act now, but it's tricky because uh, to get out of it, in the past, the government... Uh, a few times has tried to get out of it, but what they really want to just get out of it is they just want to renege on the treaties. They just want to say, oh, the treaty's kind of expired now, so we we don't have any responsibility for you anymore. Mm. But that's wrong too, right? Mm-hmm. So, but but those of us sort of uh, working in this sort of indigenous world, we're like, but we you can't just pull out the Indian Act and sort of leave it, what are we replacing it with? What would that yeah. look like? And and that's why we always talk about sort of self-determination, right? Self-government. But the thing is, is that the government has spent, you know, the, the past 200 years um, making sure that First Nations people didn't have enough education, making sure that they were they they were sort of sick, and they they lived in poor housing, that they were felt ashamed of themselves, and so now you're just expecting them to be able to mm-hmm. have the capacity to you know to just be operate fine, yeah. that level and be fine, right? Yeah. So it's a bit ironic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's 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 a process, and it, it'll take a long time. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of social issues on reserves, but you are also seeing a lot more people um, more educated. But that's a double-edged sword too, because when you say educated, that means educated in the mm-hmm. colonial Canadian sort of system. Yeah, we're also seeing people starting to relearn their language, go back to the land, understand what they had before. You know, the mm-hmm. the government sort of interfered with their lives, and and sort of that pride that people have, sort of in who they are. And it's it's a very exciting time to see. Mm-hmm. It's it's distressing, you know, certain things like um, the the Canadian justice system is totally messed up and there's been several cases and you may have even heard about Colton Bushy in Saskatchewan it was a terrible case about a young man he was he he and his buddies had a flat tire and ended up um on the property of this farmer and the farmer ends up shooting this young guy like point blank with his rifle Mm -hmm. while he's sitting in a pickup truck and there was a big trial about it and uh, he was found not guilty because of something happened to the gun and it misfired. And again, this was not from the 70s. This was like last year. So this kind of stuff still happens. There's cases about, you know, miscarriage of justice, all kinds of horrible stuff in the justice system. So Indigenous people are still not being treated mm-hmm. fairly. They're still, we're still going to have dregs of this sort of racism. But I think the hope is in the, is in the education system, in the young people. Because, yeah, you know, sure. if you have kids learning about, you know, some of the stuff I just said, and like the look mm-hmm. on your face, they're like, what the heck, right? Yeah. <laughs> like they won't, they don't tolerate that anymore. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're not born a racist, right? You're taught it. Right, mm-hmm. it's how you learn, and yeah. and even like and even like I- immigrants, like the kinds of things that we're we're now asking immigrants to learn mm-hmm. is changing, right? So mm-hmm. how would an immigrant know any better, right? If if yeah. if you know your neighbor is some white dude, redneck, who's you know who's got these attitudes towards indigenous people, well, how would you know any different that that's not the way it should be? Yeah. So there's multi faceted ways that we can change people's attitudes but for sure the education system children and young people for sure and immigrants I think are the areas where we're starting to see mm-hmm. you know attitudes change but again if you if you're just a, you know a, a typical sort of white Canadian growing up 
you're you're kind of offended when people say, oh, you know, this is how Indigenous people were treated, right? Because people get very offended. And they're like, mm-hmm. well, that's not, I didn't do that. That wasn't my family. And I'm like, well, it's not about that. This is about the whole system. The system is yeah. messed up and we've got to change it, right? Mm-hmm. But there's resistance because people don't want to admit that this is part of our history, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, the one the one story about residential schools that I heard from... One of the so there were three commissioners on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. One, her name was Marie Wilson, and I uh, I share this quote when I do the my courses because it's very chilling. Because she said they looked at photos, and there were like a hundred and forty of these residential schools across Canada, and she said they they looked at photos of these old these schools, and they visited the site where some of those schools still stood, and she said she said not every school had a playground but every school had a graveyard oh my god this is canada we're talking yeah that's wild and a most graveyard. of them were unmarked and often the children the the administrators and they were mostly run by churches they did not tell the parents what happened that's they didn't so know. horrible and sometimes the parents weren't allowed to visit when the kids were there and it was horrible. a graveyard at a school a like, that's so messed up mm-hmm yeah. Oh so I mean, again, this is our history. So mm-hmm. when people say, "Oh, you need to get over it," well, you know what? This is going to take a little bit longer than yeah, you know. Like next sure. week, we'll get over it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get on that. A hundred percent. Oh, people just need to understand. And I think that's it, right? It's just understand. Have a little mm-hmm. bit of sort of empathy, and try to understand another person's perspective. That's really one thing that my dad 100%. taught me too, right? If you can just mm-hmm. try to understand, it's mm-hmm. like you know you and, and I've learned so much. You know, being married to Jericho, just understanding the immigrant perspective, what mm-hmm. it must have been like for his parents yeah. to come, or even him, and not understand English. And you know, if you just understand people's perspectives, mm-hmm. and it really just opens your eyes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, when you talk about immigrants too, it makes me think. Like one other thing that makes me really angry is when people say like about immigrants, like oh, like they're coming here and like taking our jobs and blah blah blah, but like. Like, the original people of Canada were indigenous people. And it's, like, the people who I've experienced who've said things like that have never been indigenous. So it's, like, okay, so where are your ancestors from? Not from Canada. I so know. it's, like, I know, like right? we're all immigrants. I know. Unless you're indigenous. I know. And, so. and I did a course once, and uh, I used this word settler. Oh, my goodness. And this woman just, like, tore oh, no. strip off of me. I, why are you using that word? My family is, like, from, came, like, we've been in Quebec or whatever for, like, like three or 350 years. Don't call me a settler. Blah, blah, blah. And, like, what am I going to say? I'm like, but you still are. It doesn't matter yeah. if it was 350 <laughs> years ago, right? Mm-hmm. You are not indigenous to this country. Mm-hmm. You've made this country your own, and we've made it the country that it is, and that's totally fine. But we need to understand that people came from, especially France and Britain, to settle in Canada, mm-hmm. right? And that was the point, right? Yeah. They wanted to make this a new country for them, right? It was their new world, which, you know, you put in quotation marks because... Christopher Columbus didn't find a new world and that world had been there for thousands of years. It just, it was a European who discovered they were there, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. This world was already inhabited. Exactly. And it wasn't new to the people who were living there. Yeah, exactly. Oh man. So what would you say, um, that people should do in order to be able to help support the indigenous well i i think i think what you just said like the awareness is really the first step and that's why the trc held all those hearings across canada and did all the work that they did because it was about truth 
and about reconciliation. So truth is we got to understand the truth and we got to accept the truth that this is our history. That's the Mm -hmm. first step. And we have to be willing to acknowledge that, yes, we're all part of this history. Uh, So the truth for sure and and have have some sort of compassion. So understand that if you're going to sow, if you're going to sow these seeds of sort of colonialism, don't be surprised by what you reap. You're going to reap what you sow. So how we see Indigenous people today, we should not be surprised. And mm. let's try to figure out why they, how and why they got there and care enough to even ask about that. And then the reconciliation will be to make sure, A, it never happens again, and to sort of put things in place so that Indigenous people can have the kind of self-determination that they've always sort of asked for. Sort of get that heavy hand of you know, government off them mm-hmm. so that they can sort of figure out sort of, you know, who they are, go back to sort of what they had. I mean, we're never going to go back. I mean, hey, I love my central heating and, you yeah. know, Tim Hortons. <laughs> and, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We didn't invent any of that stuff. But, but it also means that we don't want to have to give up everything about who we are to be mm-hmm. able to, you know, live in the modern world, right? Mm-hmm. Because when you come from, you know, the Philippines or no matter where you come from and you might live now in Canada, if you really wanted to know and if, you know, if everyone in your family was gone, you could still go back to the Philippines and find people speaking the language, living the culture. You could go there. Mm-hmm. What are Indigenous people going to do if all the mm, people got, so get, loose, get lost or if all the languages are gone, right? There's nowhere else to kind of go back to. So that's why I think why you see so many Indigenous people fighting so strongly, right, for land rights and sovereignty. And they're like, you know what? This is it. Like, we've got to maintain this. We have to keep mm-hmm. it because it's the only place we're going to find it. Yeah, that makes sense. I've never thought about it like that. So I also wanted to talk about, um, yeah, we have enough time, um, just about you and your life. Um, so like everything that you've been going through lately, cause you've been having a lot of stuff happening in your yes, life. Yes. Yes. Yeah. This has been a, tw- I was uh, quite happy to shake the dust from 2019 from my feet. I'm very mm-hmm. happy to be in 2020, 2019, actually starting in August of 2018, it's been a very difficult year and a half for me. I was diagnosed with breast cancer in August of 2018, and my whole life just got upended in a moment when I heard that. I I was in absolute shock. Since then, of course, I've met, you know, many women on this journey, and sadly, the statistic is that one in eight Canadian women will get breast cancer in their life. One in eight, that's like 12 or something percent. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. And it's mostly, you know, people like me who don't have any risk factors, none in my family. I'm not overweight. I don't smoke or drink. Or They have all this, these lists of risk factors and I, I didn't have any of them. And I met all kinds of women and they didn't have any either. So they're not, they're not really sure, but I, I think it has something to do with the, with just the environment that we live in these days with all the chemicals and all of the, yeah, we, we just don't live the kind of life we used to, the food that we eat and the exposure that we have to different chemicals. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so I was diagnosed. Uh, fortunately, it was what they call early stage. So there's four possible stages of cancer and one stage one and stage two are considered early stage. Stage three is um, more serious. And then stage four is what they actually call metastatic breast cancer, which means it's already gone to another part 
of the body somewhere else. But mine was stage two. And, uh, but it, I, I had something called, um, so it was positive for hormones, which basically means that somehow estrogen, either artificial estrogen in the environment or my own estrogen somehow made the cancer grow. Hmm. And I also had this other, again, not being a medical person, but I was also positive for something they called HER2. And it's some kind of protein that grows on cancer cells and makes them grow exponentially. So as soon as I was diagnosed and they told me that I was HER2 positive, so, so I'm triple positive, they call it. So uh, estrogen, progesterone, and HER2, and I was positive for those three things, they said that I had to get on to chemotherapy immediately because with the HER2, being HER2 positive, they didn't know if um, if I had any other cancer cells anywhere else in my body, the HER2, the protein was going to start to make that grow exponentially. Hmm. So they now have this drug called Herceptin, which basically starts to kind of block that HER2 protein. So I needed to get on two heavy doses of chemo plus Herceptin for four months. So that was six rounds of chemo. And two weeks after the very first round of chemo, I lost all my hair. Like, just like that. And it was, it was devastating. It was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. And, um, you know, having to go through and, and it's just sucks. I mean, chemo just sucks. I mean, anybody who's ever had to go through it can tell you it's just not fun. But, um, if it's doing its job, then you endure it because right now it still seems barbaric, but until we have other things and there are other things on the horizon, like immunotherapy and all kinds of things. But for now, chemotherapy is still the best way to do it and again not being a medical person but how I explained it again like you being a trained as a journalist like have to ask (laughs) questions and take notes and understand everything yeah and so so the chemotherapy works because it so cancer is basically just a rogue cell it's just a cell that decides that it's not going to die so all our cells in our body I've been told basically regenerate themselves every seven years so basically we're a new person every seven years so i just use that and say okay i'm my new person now (laughs) Mm -hmm. but what happens is a cancer cell for whatever reason has just decided you know no i'm just not gonna die (laughs) and then they just tell their neighbors next to them hey we found a way not to die so why don't you just stay alive too (laughs) and then they just grow and they grow and then they just take over the healthy cells and so the chemotherapy um, basically um, is just a way to kill those cells and the chemotherapy they've developed it such that it knows how to target those cells that grow fast because chemo cell or cancer cells just grow a lot faster than every other cell in your mm-hmm. body but unfortunately because it's targeting fast growing cells it also targets there's only a few other cells in your body that grow quickly and it targets those too and oh, that's true. why you lose your hair because your hair is a cell that grows quickly oh, okay. and your nails basically stop growing and they get very brittle because oh. they also are grow fast and also there are um, some cells in your stomach that are fast growing cells and also in your mouth so people will that's why a lot of people suffer from nausea from chemotherapy because of the because oh, how it's affecting your stomach mm-hmm. and a lot of people get mouth sores for the same reason because mm. again there's fast growing cells in your mouth 
and that's why you lose all your hair. Some people also, depending on the severity of the chemo, they might also you might also lose your eyebrows and your eyelashes, like hair everywhere. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate in that again, partly because I only had six rounds. I didn't lose um, I didn't lose my eyelashes, and I just lost a little bit off my eyebrows, but I lost all the hair. And again, it's just horrible and devastating. Anyways, I went through that, had six rounds of chemo, and then I had um, a mastectomy. I could have had a lumpectomy, which means they just take out the piece of the tumor. The chemotherapy came back and did its job, and my oncologist told me at the end of the sixth round um, that the chemo got 99% of the tumor. So mm-hmm. that was great. Yeah. And then I had, to, and I decided to have a mastectomy instead just because of the type that I had and how it was found. They weren't going to be able to save the nipple and it was going to be kind of weird and deformed. And, and I, yeah, I just, I didn't, I didn't want to get a, I didn't want to get an implant, which is what a lot of women do. Mm-hmm. I just thought I don't want another foreign thing in my body. No, thank yeah, you. And then the other, the other way, and again, again, I'm so non, non-medical, like anything to do with like <laughs> body. So I was like, I'm squeamish. I like, <laughs> so the other thing that they, they do is uh, they um, they take tissue from somewhere else in your body and basically like stuff it and give you a new kind of boom and they take oh, it they basically oh, give you a tummy tuck oh, so they take amazing. fat and tissue yeah. so a lot of a lot of women are like hey oh yeah hell yeah I want a tummy <laughs> yeah. tuck at the same time but again I just was like ew like you're just like yeah, yeah. I just I couldn't picture it. So I just went with just the mastectomy. So I did mm-hmm. not get um, I did not get any reconstruction. I can go after a year if I if I decide I want to. I can mm-hmm. go back and get it. But but I'm not. I have to just adjust to a new reality. But mm-hmm. these days, they have these boutiques, and you just you get all these the special bras and stuff. You know, mastectomy yeah. bras and stuff. So it's hard. I mean, every day you're waking up knowing you're you're mm-hmm. deformed, and you know it's it's just it's hard. But it's again, I'm alive, so I'd rather have my life than my boobs. So yeah, I'll keep it at I that. didn't know that you went through that. <laughs> that you decided to get a mastectomy. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. Was it hard to make that decision? Well, for me, it wasn't. Yeah. I I just thought, again, yeah, you know what? Just take it. <laughs> because mm-hmm. there's a chance it could come back again right yeah. and I thought then I would have had to get a mastectomy anyways yeah and so I thought you know yeah just just take it and then I'll just sort of I'll just deal with it yeah that. Mm-hmm. and again with the with the, the lumpectomy the other reason why is if I'd had a lumpectomy I would have had to have radiation so it's often when oh, you have true. cancer it's chemo and surgery and radiation or sometimes it's surgery then rate and then chemo but because I had a mastectomy and I saw the radiation oncologist, she said, you, 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 the, 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 um, the benefit of taking radiation for you with a mastectomy is pretty low. So you can get it if you want, but you don't have to. And I decided not to partly because my sister-in-law mm-hmm. had to have heart surgery because of the radiation that she had when she was a kid from her cancer. And that was happening while I was thinking about radiation. And I thought, right. you know, I just, if I don't have to have that, I'm going to not have that. Because mm-hmm. as horrible as chemo is, it doesn't have a long-term effect on your body. It does its crazy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but then once it's done, and then it's out of your body. But when you do radiation, there's a chance of longer term yeah and something true. popping up 10 20 30 years from now mm-hmm. so I just didn't want that over my head so I thought you know what I'm okay with having mastectomy and not doing radiation yeah so that was why 
That's fair. Yeah. So when did everything finish? So I, uh, so I, I was telling you about that I'm this, this her true positive thing. So after the six rounds of chemo, that was four months worth, I had to carry on with this Herceptin drug, which was not a chemo drug and I didn't lose my hair or anything like that. It didn't really bother me, but I still had to get it intravenously. Mm. So that was supposed to be for a full year. So I started chemo in September of 2018 and then I was supposed to go and, uh, so I do the chemo and then I finish the chemo and I continue with Herceptin every three weeks until... September of 2019 but in the spring of 2019 my oncologist told me about a new study that showed there was a a new drug that was better than Herceptin to help with uh, reduce recurrence of the type of cancer I had and he encouraged me to get on it which I agreed to and I did four rounds of that and but the problem was is that it was uh, the, this new drug was basically Herceptin mixed with a chemo so then oh. I got back onto the oh. chemo for four rounds but it was not anywhere near as severe I didn't lose my hair again mm. but I had some of the sort of side effects so that finished in October of 2019 and then that's it I've mm-hmm. been done now I'm just now I'm on this maintenance a pill that I have to take for five years because my particular cancer was estrogen positive and this drug is called tamoxifen and it uh, basically is putting me chemically into menopause so my ovaries are no longer producing any estrogen so that if that was one of the ways that cancer grew then that's no longer happening so basically I've had to in a very short amount of time go through what all women have to do in their 50s through menopause with hot flashes and night sweats and irritability (laughs) all in like the space of a few months it's not horrible but I've been on it now for a few months and I think I'm coming on the other side and so again adjusting kind of to the new reality and bottom line is right I mean if this is this this helps reduce recurrence then Mm -hmm. then you do it I'm of course at a higher risk of recurrence and that's always hard, right? When you talk about sort of mental health to know in the back of your head, it's always there. Oh, is this going to come back, right? Mm -hmm. But you can't, you can't live every day holding that over your head or you go crazy. Yeah. Yeah. True. So it was since October you've been officially yeah. cancer free. Yeah. That's and, so exciting. But sadly, the doctors don't tell you that. Like they can't oh. ever say you're oh, cancer really? free. That certainly oh. my oncologist didn't. What yeah. they say is there's no evidence of disease, which doesn't quite <laughs> sound so you know yeah. enthusiastic. But <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. That's so exciting. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Did you do anything like big to celebrate? Well, not really, because you know it's. It was more just like, now I can kind of have my life back again, right? Yeah, so, but you'll never be the same. Yeah. Right? But I can get my life back and just go and yeah. live it. Yeah. What is the biggest thing that you learned from going through all of that? Uh, well, I learned a lot of different things. First of all, I now can tell you anything you ever want to know about <laughs> breast cancer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, I learned that I, I, I think I've made good choices for my friends. So in Ottawa, mm-hmm. we have no family. And so your friends become your family. And so, I mean, you know, Jericho and I have been in Ottawa, you know, for we've been married over 20 years now. And I've been in Ottawa for 30 years now. Um, and you need people around you, especially when you're sick. Now, Jericho's parents were fabulous. They actually almost lived with us for four months while I went through chemo. My mom came for a month. But it's the everyday, right? And uh, And all my friends sort of stood by me. And the other thing that I learned is that People really do want to help, but they have no idea what yeah. to do, right? When you, when you find out, you know, your friend has breast cancer, they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. And then they're like, 
anything you need, like just call me, like how I'm there for you. But they don't know what to do. And you mm-hmm. don't. Like when you're when I'm going through chemo, I am not calling this friend or that friend, <laughs> yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You just can't quite think straight. But again, being kind of bold and forward, I I did. I I, I took a group of friends and I and I put a little like I had this little email list and I called them my circle of care uh-huh. and I just I kept them updated with what was going on and because the chemo was every three weeks I would feel really rotten for the first week a little better in the second week by the third week I was feeling okay and so then I would think clearly and then I'd think ahead and then I'd say you know you know next Tuesday and Wednesday I could really use if somebody could like bring over a meal or or I'd say you know I right after chemo in the next couple of days I really need to I've been told I need to get out and walk but I'm not motivated could I have could somebody just come over and like drag me yeah. out of bed and like go for a walk with me and people were so appreciative so I guess I learned that people people want you to like boss them around and tell tell you what they, they need because they're mm-hmm. desperate to help but they don't know what to do and if you just tell them where Whereas that's not natural for people. They're like, oh, I don't want to bother people and I'm not, I'm going to do it myself. And like, you don't want to go through this yourself. So just mm-hmm. ask for help because people are more than happy to help. And, and, and I think all of us in our family, we were all supported by our friends and family that sort of came and sort of helped and did sort of whatever they could. And so I, I definitely learned that mm-hmm. through this journey. And I also learned that, you know, every day is precious. I mean, I've always felt that way. I've always been a kind of carpe diem kind of person like I I watched that that was from Dead Poets Society and I was I was like a teenager when I first saw then I was like yes that's gonna be me my life make my life count and blah 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 (laughs) so I I feel like I've lived that kind of life but Mm -hmm. you you it comes into sharp focus when you wonder if you are gonna live very long right I mean luckily you know I had early stage cancer but you know there's there's a couple of weeks from when they do the biopsy to when they give you the results that you don't know so in those, those were the two worst weeks of my life because then your life flashes before you and you think, what if, right? Yeah. I'm oh going to die. So it's horrible. It's horrible. Mm-hmm. But when you come face to face with that, you, you do look at your life. You look at where you've come and you look at where you're at. And that's why you see a lot of people, you know, when they've had a diagnosis like this, if they come out on the other side, they totally change their life. They get divorced. They get married. <laughs> yeah. They move. They buy a house. They sell a house. They get a dog. They change their job. Mm-hmm. They go back to school because they're like, no, that's it. I'm not wasting my time. Mm-hmm. And I think I learned that I, I, I love the life that I have. And there wasn't one sort of major thing that I felt I regretted that I needed to change. Mm-hmm. Coming oh, out that's of nice. So that was a really good lesson mm-hmm. to learn. I was very sort of... I was very happy about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. And then again, you have to sort of live every day. And there was a, there was a, a a cartoon that I posted on on my social media, and it was from it was Charlie Brown and Snoopy, and they're sitting on this dock, and they're looking out at the water, and Charlie Brown, always so melancholy as he is, is saying to Snoopy, "Because you know, Charlie Brown, or you know, Snoopy, one day we're all gonna die." <laughs> And Snoopy turns and says, the little bubble says, yes, Charlie Brown, but on every other day, we're not. Oh, that's right? nice. And so that's it. That's just my motto. It's mm-hmm. like, maybe the cancer will come back. Maybe it won't. Someday, yes, we will die, whether it's for me, it's from cancer or something else. But you know what? On every other day, I'm not. And so I don't want to live every other day as if I was. Mm-hmm. That's basically mm-hmm. what I learned. Cool. I like that. <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Okay. Okay, so I have been ending each interview with two questions. Although I feel like you kind of just answered 
one. But anyway, I'll ask it anyway. <laughs> okay. Um, so the first is, what is something that you're learning right now? Uh, what else am I learning right now? I, I think coming through the illness that I've been through and working in this area, sort of this indigenous world, I feel like I've, I've learned to be more compassionate and kind to people, like to just be kind and to just know that everybody's got a story and you don't know what necessarily what that story is, so give people the benefit of the doubt, right? Mm-hmm. And not everybody is is self-aware, right? Not everybody gets to live the life that they love. And so, you know, that's sad in a way, but it's not up to me to live somebody else's life or change them or make them come to my point of view, right? I feel like I don't need to I don't need to justify who I am, what I do, why I do to people or convince people they should do something the way I do it or, you know, see things the way I see things. You know what? That's, I don't need to do that. Um, mm-hmm. Just be kind and accept people, you know, be who you are kind of thing. You know, the famous, the, the, again, I, I, I like cheesy quotes. My family, <laughs> my family laughs at me, but I like cheesy quotes. And the Dr. Seuss quote about be who you are and say what you feel because those who matter don't mind and those who mind don't matter. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Right? So. I feel like that was like my desktop background. At yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, time. right? I love cheesy quotes. It's so. true. I do too. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, and, and, and live and let live. Again, I said my dad was an alcoholic and when he stopped, he was part of Alcoholics Anonymous for many, many years. And uh, not like I, like I kind of made fun of him, but I, I used to be like, again, like, they had he had these cheesy little things on the wall and quotes and he had this little book he would read of they'd have all these like little kind of devotional kind of things in it mm-hmm. but one of them was live and let live and i'm like that's like so lame it's like so obvious but now it's more profound to me i mm-hmm. find now that i'm i'm older it's true like that's it live and let live right yeah. so i feel like that's that's basically what i'm trying to that's what I've learned and would, would encourage everybody to do. Or like today, these days, like that was back, back in the day. But now my kids say what's, I think, the new version of that, which is you be you, right? Yeah. That's what people say. So I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, that's it. You be you. Yeah, that's and I'll nice. be me. I like it. Yeah. Um, and then the last one is, what's the biggest lesson you've learned in your life so far? Oh, my goodness. Oh, <laughs> it's a lot about learning. It's called learn with love. So. <laughs> The biggest lesson? Mm-hmm. Oh just like something that stands out to you. Okay. Let me think here. <laughs> it's sort of similar to kind of what I was saying here. I, 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 I mentioned my dad, and my dad is like my biggest role model. And he taught me this lesson when I was a teenager about not about giving people the benefit of the doubt and you know and in the sort of indigenous world the saying is like walk a mile in somebody's moccasins or walk a mile in their Mm -hmm. shoes so um try to understand that everybody comes from a perspective that might not be yours and that yours isn't necessarily right and again I think it's the it goes back to the sort of being kind and letting people be who they are, letting people live the kind of life they want to live. And that when, you know, people treat you badly or say things that you're like, where did that come from? Understand that you don't know where that came from. And it's not up to you to sort of fix them or necessarily change them. It's also not up to you to take that on yourself. That's on them. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And I see a lot of still a lot of sort of racism and a lot of issues again in the sort of indigenous work that I do. But again, why do people feel like that? And where did that come from? And yes, we need to educate people and we need to make sure people are not going to be racist but at the same time some people are lashing out in in their hurt or they're envious or they're angry or they've got something in their own past that they're taking out on someone else right mm-hmm. and that has nothing to do with me so i feel like everything that i've been through it's like i'm not taking on any of your stuff like uh, whatever you sort of say or do to me, I'm not sort of hurt by what people say or do because I know who I am and I don't know what's brought that on to why they're being like that, but I'm not going to respond in kind. So mm-hmm. I will be kind. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah, I can. I like that. I feel like that's something like I'm learning right now too. Cause like when I feel like I'm not being understood, I'm like, no, like, like get where I'm coming yeah. from now like listen to me but yeah I'm learning to just like be okay with yeah. like not everyone's gonna get me and that's fine yeah and that's very true yeah mm-hmm. I yeah. agree with that mm-hmm. okay cool thank okay. you for being on my podcast <laughs> you're welcome <laughs>